Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are here with us this morning. Father, I thank you that you you bless us in all the ways that you do. Father, I pray this morning that this message um, is not about the words that I speak, Father, about it. It is about your agenda this morning and that you sit with us and that you stir our hearts to look towards you and that you change us from the inside out. In Jesus' mighty name. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I was thinking this morning that um, don't say thank you enough to the people who volunteer here. Um, And there are lots of people who just serve tirelessly all of the time. So if you serve here and you feel underappreciated, I apologise for that, um, but thank you. It is a privilege to, um, to to serve among you, and that we can actually journey through this life together. It's actually really, really important. Um, I've always been one who's valued serving in church. Um, so those of you who do serve, thank you. Those of you who have served in the past, thank you for that. Those of you who wish to serve in the future, or the imminent future, come and speak to me, and we'll work that out. So there's a few new faces here this morning that I don't recognise. So those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Um, I have the privilege of serving on staff um, here at New Spring. Um, and um, yeah, we've got a lot to get through this morning. Um, we're in the second week or second last week of our series down the mountain that we've been in. It feels like a long time. Um, and we've been in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and then this series for at least... 18 months now, I think. So it's been a nice long slog. It's been good. Um, So just as we're going to find ourselves in the last sort of three um, miracle stories this morning, it's the last second last section, as I said. And just sort of as an initial comment um, this morning. So although we're going through a new passage this morning... um, these passages very much have their foundation on the passage that we had last week, okay? And I'm going to briefly recap that this morning for those of you who weren't here last week, Um, but it is only going to be a brief recap. So if something sort of tickles your interest about what I said or what I'm saying from last week, then it's obviously online that you can then go and have a listen to that if you feel the need to. Um, So that being said, we'll get into it. So last week, um, we spoke about new wine and new wineskins. We looked at how Jesus has ushered in this new age, this new kingdom. And as we said last week, this new wine is the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news 
that Jesus has brought about his salvific plan for us and for history. And that through Jesus' death on the cross and his rising to new life, he has given us new life and he has raised us from the dead and we are now alive with Christ. We have been made into a new person through the blood of Christ. We also spoke about last week that the old wineskin, which is the old ethical teachings of uh, Israel's Torah, can no longer contain this new wine that Jesus has brought in. This new wine needs new wineskin. And as we said last week, the new wineskin is the new righteousness that Jesus proclaims in his Sermon on the Mount. We also learnt that righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus that he's brought in on the Sermon on the Mount, which can and does refer to our right standing before the Lord, also has a horizontal aspect and an outworking in justice. That it's how we see others, how we think about them, how we treat them. And a quote that I didn't use last week because you can't say everything says this. Because of the new era represented by the fulfillment brought by Jesus, a new possibility of understanding and obeying God's will becomes available. The disciples' new obedience turns on the unique person and mission of Jesus. And we looked at how this works in Paul's life. We briefly looked at Paul's mission and that his heart was always motivated by resurrection. That he wanted to see a move of God and for God's people to live a resurrection life here on earth. It was just that when he met the Messiah on the road to Damascus, the wineskin that he was using didn't fit the new wine anymore. And because it couldn't contain that new revelation, he had to change. And he did. Now, one thing that I realized last week that I didn't flesh out as well as I probably could have was this that the righteousness that Christ brings and the outworking of his justice, it can't be motivated by us. That's not how it works. We are motivated by God alone, by our standing before God alone and not from the approval of others. Let me explain. Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, to be careful not to practice our righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. So Paul, after his Damascus Road encounter with Jesus, moves from a life that was motivated by personal prestige, by power, 
and by acts of violence. They are all very public, in a lot of ways, very publicly motivated things. But when Jesus met the Lord on the road of Damascus, his life became a life of cruciformity, a life that is shaped by the cross, that is letting the cross of the crucified Messiah be the shape and source of his life. And as we know from the Sermon on the Mount, that is a life that starts in the heart and then outworks everywhere else. It is not motivated by our external look. So as we come to our passage this morning, we need to ask another really important question. And the question is this. How do we outwork the righteousness and justice of Jesus' new kingdom? How does that happen? How do we do it? Do we just get busy being nice to people? And seeking justice for them? Do we work out of our own strength? Does our heart, or does our heart change? Sorry, let me say that again. How does our heart change seek the justice of the new revelation of the kingdom of God? And how do we access this reality of of Christ's kingdom? Because we got to the point last week where we understood that we stand before the Lord in righteousness and it outworks injustice, but how then now does that come about? Is it just out of our own strength that we do it and we just hope for the best that we're now good people? With all that in mind, that we can get into this morning's passage. We're in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, starting at verse 18. So we've just had Jesus say that, um, no, they put, so verse 17, no, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and they are both preserved from last week. Verse 18, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him and saying, my daughter's just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Then, just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw to her, and saw her, have courage, daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread throughout the whole era. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he, when the, he approached the house, the, the blind men approached, sorry, when he approached the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. But Jesus warned them sternly, 
sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the, the news about him throughout the whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, there are potentially three, if not more, sermons in that passage that I've just read. Um, so we're going to stay here for about four hours while I get through the no. <laughs> So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to make one observation, and then I'm going to draw out what I think is the main central point of that passage, that whole section, and that'll be what it is. So my observation is this. Jesus, in these three miracle stories of four healings, is demonstrating that the new kingdom, the new wine, is available to everyone. Now, in Jewish tradition, the dead girl and the bleeding woman were considered unclean. And the blind men and the demon-possessed mute were considered outsiders. And none of them had any business whatsoever interacting with a rabbi. Because for someone who is an outsider or someone who is unclean to interact with a rabbi would make that rabbi unclean. And in order for him to then go back into temple and to practice his holy tradition he would then have to go through a purification process to make himself holy again and clean again. And this is another difference, a major difference, I think, between the old wineskin and the new wineskin. If I'm holy or considered clean and I have an interaction with you and you're considered unclean I don't make you holy you make me unclean right the old wine skin of Jewish Torah sees dirty people make clean people dirty in their standing before God and their purification rituals okay so you get that economy now, the new wineskin of Jesus' righteousness, same scenario, if I'm clean and you're dirty and we interact, I don't get dirty because my holiness is not derived from an interaction with the world, but my holiness is derived from my relationship with Christ. It is Christ that makes me clean. It is Christ that makes me holy. Not because I've said my prayers or I've been faithful to Torah. It is not outside work that does that for me. So I'm able, under the new wineskin and righteousness of Christ, I'm able to go out into the world and actually deal with unclean people and they don't make me unclean. So 
So these miracle stories are demonstrating to us that Jesus cares for the despised outsider. New sight for the blind, new speech for the mute, new health for the sick, new life for the dead. That's what the newness of Jesus means. But this newness, although available to everyone, is not accessible for everyone. Well, it is. But the new wineskin, the new righteousness, is only accessible through faith. And this is the central point that Matthew is making here. So let's look at this passage again. So in a more careful reading of these passages, we can see that these three narratives are linked. Yeah? Not simply because they are miracle healings, but they are linked either by the subject's faith or the people around them's lack of faith. In the first narrative, the faith of the leader and that of the woman are compared and contrasted. Jesus responds to the faith of the leader. In verse 19 tells us that upon the leader's faith request for healing, Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. And Jesus then heals the little girl. Not on her faith, because she was dead, but on the faith of the father. The hemorrhaging woman is the same. I just need to touch his clothing, she tells herself. And what was Jesus' response in verse 22? Your faith has saved you. The blind men in the next narrative are in a similar situation. They're interrogated by Jesus about their faith and they were healed. The third narrative is a little bit different as we don't read at all about the faith of the demon-possessed man. But the faith response of the audience is of what is important. So Matthew also contrasts the faith of these people and those around them. One commentator wrote that the power of Jesus is not displayed in the climate of unbelief. So for the ruler... Jesus responds to his faith that he can raise his daughter from the dead. But the crowd were initially told by Jesus in verse 24 to leave. And then in verse 25, they had been put outside. The word used here means to be cast out. The same word used elsewhere in Matthew for exorcisms or announcements of judgment. For the hemorrhaging woman, now we know from Luke's account of this, that Jesus and his disciples were being crushed by the crowds. She wasn't alone. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of people there. Yet Jesus responds to her faith alone. And the crowd around the woman who did not believe, they received nothing. The narrative of the mute demon-possessed man and the Pharisees who did not believe. And like the crowd whom the Pharisees despised, they too 
receive nothing. Now, it's important here, I think, to pause just momentarily and speak briefly about the nature of faith and healing. Both here in Matthew and in the other Gospels. So in chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. In chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus says to the blind man, let it be done according to your faith. So what's happening here? Is Jesus saying that the more faith you have, then the more likely you are to be healed? Now, I've certainly heard people say things like that. And I think if you've been around church long enough, you potentially have heard people say things like that. Hopefully you haven't said it yourself. It might go something like this. Someone has some form of sickness and they ask for prayer, and they get prayed for. And then nothing changes. They remain sick. And potentially someone around them then says, oh, you mustn't have prayed hard enough. Or you don't have, mustn't have enough faith. Or you must have some form of unconfessed sin in your life. Getting a few nods. So not only do I think from this passage that that is wrong, it's my personal opinion that's absolutely spiritual abuse. Several years ago, um, Marnie and I were attending a home church. And not long into our time there, we were introduced to a woman who was married to a great guy, had a toddler, and she had just received the news that her attempts to combat the cancer that was ravaging her body had failed. Sorry. that she was imminently going to die. Now, I've never seen a Christian community come together in prayer like that community has or did. Impromptu prayer meetings, 24-hour prayer vigils, just constantly lifting up the circumstances of this woman and her family up to God. The thing is, a week later, she died. Now, did she die because she had a lack of faith? Or did she die because the people who were praying for her had a lack of faith? Because that's the questions that we're asking. Who was it? Now, anyone who's been human for more than five minutes knows that we live in a broken and fallen world. And stuff happens that seems unfair. Stuff happens that completely sucks. Yeah. 
When Jesus says according to your faith, he does not mean in proportion to your faith. But rather, since you believe, your request has been granted. And we know from Scripture and from life that not everything we ask of God is granted. And if you know the answer to that, I encourage you to come and grab the mic and let us know why that is, because I don't know. Faith is only the instrument, not the power itself. The value of someone's faith does not come from the person who expresses it, but from the object in which it relies. Ultimately, healing is not contingent upon the quality of your faith, but upon the healer. And Jesus, as we know, did not indiscriminately heal the people all of the time. In John chapter 5, we are introduced to a disabled man at the pool of Bethsaida, where multitudes gathered to be healed. Jesus chose only one man to heal. Jesus asked the man if he wanted to be made well, and his answer was steeped in superstition. There was no one to carry him to the pool, and he wasn't fast enough to get into the water at the right time. In fact, he had no faith in Jesus whatsoever. And he didn't even know who Jesus was, or that it was Jesus who was healing him until after the fact. It's the quality of the healer that brings about the power of healing. So when we come back to our passage this morning, was the faith of these people correct? No. Not really at all. It wasn't. So the synagogue ruler came to Jesus as a last resort, desperate to see if anything could be done about his child. It's the equivalent of like, wow, we've tried everything else, maybe we should start and pray. The woman in the crowd had a superstitious faith. She thought that if she just touched his clothes that a miracle might occur. And the blind men called Jesus son of David. Now a title which is correct and true, it was one that he sought to avoid because of its nationalistic associations. And not only that, Jesus then told them not to go and say anything. And they completely disobeyed him straight away. Because they went and told everybody. Their faith was full of inadequacies and errors. But their requests were answered. Why? It's because their faith didn't have to be perfect. Their faith was answered because it was located in Jesus. It reached out and touched Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Matthew speaks about faith several times. Along with righteousness... For Matthew, faith is a key mark of discipleship in the kingdom. 
in Matthew, Jesus speaks of those with little faith several times. In chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples that they couldn't drive out demons because of their little faith, and that if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, then nothing would be impossible for them. Matthew also contrasts the great faith of a Roman centurion with the little faith of his disciples in chapter 8. The Gospel of Matthew, or in the Gospel of Matthew, faith is contrasted by others' lack of faith or their lack of belief. And faith and belief both have the same root word in the Greek. So in the New Testament, there are upwards of 500 instances or so of the usage of the words faith and belief. It's a central theological concept. The synoptics, so Matthew, Mark and Luke, as we've already seen, faith is mostly associated with the ministry of Jesus, his miracles and his healings. In the Gospel of John, faith, or more specifically belief, is presented as something that God requires of his people. The book of Acts Faith and belief is used to refer to the Jews and Gentiles converting to following the life and teachings of Jesus and becoming a part of a Christian community. The book of Acts correlates faith in Christ closely with repentance. Paul relates faith to righteousness and justification in Romans and Galatians. And in Ephesians, faith is shown as the instrument of salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In Hebrews, faith is described as being being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In the letter of James, genuine works naturally accompany genuine faith. In 1 Peter, Christ is depicted as the broker of faith in God. Whereas in 2 Peter and Jude, faith is presented as received from God. In the letters of of John, to believe is used as a litmus test for those who possess eternal life. You who believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. In the book of Revelation, faith isn't addressed very often, but the faithfulness of Christ comes into focus. On and on and on. The New Testament text is saturated with the, con- with the concept of faith. So, the obvious question is then, what is faith? We all say that it's important, but do we actually know what it is? How do we get it? One Bible dictionary writes this, that throughout the scriptures, faith is the trustful human response to God's self-revelation via his words and actions. Let me read that again. Throughout the scriptures, faith is the trustful human response to God's self-revelation via his words and his actions. Another writes this. Faith is clearly one of the most important concepts in the whole New Testament. 
everywhere it is required and its importance insisted upon. Faith means abandoning all trust in one's own resources. Faith means casting oneself unreservedly on the mercy of God. Faith means laying hold of the promises of God in Christ, relying entirely on the finished work of Christ for salvation and on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God for daily strength. Faith implies complete reliance on God and full obedience to God. Abandoning all of your own resources and relying completely on God. Now, when I read that, my mind went straight to one single verse. And it's a verse that we all know. Because it's a verse that we have been using as, from the past 18 months as our foundational verse for these last two seasons that we've been in. And it's this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us for the past 18 months and you don't remember what poor in spirit is, or for those of you who have been with us for the past 18 months and you don't remember what poor in spirit is, um, let me just recap it very briefly. So the concept of being poor in spirit is best understood from the Old Testament doctrine of who the poor are. People who could not trust in their riches and therefore they had to put their trust in God. So when the Old Testament writers pronounced a blessing on the poor, it's not because they don't have any money but it's because it's a group of people that poverty was an avenue through which God drew them to himself. They could not look to themselves, so they looked to God. God is their only means of salvation. The poor in spirit are therefore people who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God are people with an admission of unworthiness and dependence upon him. It's saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's a person, someone who is poor in spirit, who understands that they have nothing to give and nothing to exchange for their soul. And this never changes. We never get in a position where we have something to exchange for that. We are never good enough. We can never earn enough. We may try, but we'll never get there. God's righteousness, his grace and his mercy is to be understood in this light. Can't earn it. Got nothing good enough to earn it. And if you remember what we spoke about all those months ago of the analogy of the golden chain or the concertina, that everything that we have actually been speaking about for the past 18 months is all linked to this verse. We haven't actually escaped it. 
and you never will. Because all life is this verse. So I've gone a few places, so let's try and (laughs) bring it together and make sense of it. So the new wine is the gospel of Jesus. It is the good news that Jesus has brought about his salvific plan for humanity, that we have been raised from death into new life with Christ, and we have been made into a new person with the blood of Christ. The new wineskin is the new righteousness that Jesus proclaims in his Sermon on the Mount. But this newness, although available to everyone, is not accessible for everyone. Because the new righteousness of Jesus is only accessible by faith. And faith is an abandoning of all of your own resources and relying completely on God. We cannot earn the righteousness of God. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do enough good works. We cannot pray enough. We cannot read our Bibles enough. Whatever you put in that dot, 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 you can't do it. It's never enough. And if we have faith in God, regardless of how imperfect that faith is, we have, in fact, by definition, abandoned all hope that we can save ourselves. And Jesus calls this acknowledgement of our own helplessness, poverty in spirit. And Jesus tells us that if we are poor in spirit, then the fullness of the kingdom of heaven is in fact already ours. See how it's all hopefully coming together? So Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 3, that we are poor in spirit. That we are blessed because we have realized that we cannot do anything to earn it, what is freely given. And then we look at our poverty in spirit. And as Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 4, that we look at our brokenness and we mourn over it. And if we mourn over it, that those who mourn, Jesus promises that we will be comforted. And this acknowledgement of our poverty in spirit brings about humility. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. I mean, how can you be proud over being so broken and hopeless? And it's at this point when you realize all of this at your heart level, not just your intellectual level, that you are then able to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
You have nothing to offer God in exchange for your souls. So that breaks us. And in that brokenness, we realize that the only person who that we can go to for anything is God. And when we realize that we have nothing to exchange for that, yes, there's mourning, but it brings about a level of humility that everything we do can't be done in our own strength. We can't be arrogant about a walk with the Lord because we've done nothing to earn it. And in the midst of that humility, we can then outwork God's justice. New wine. That's the exchange. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian walk before the Lord. And this is what our passage is teaching us this morning. The leader asking Jesus to heal his daughter. The woman approaching Jesus to cure her bleeding. The two blind men seeking sight. And the friends of the demon-possessed mute. All sense of self-reliance has gone. They realize they have nothing to save themselves. So they turn to the only one who can. The faith by which people receive salvation is not merely an acknowledgement of certain facts. Rather, it is a belief by which believers commit themselves wholly to Christ in complete dependence. And it's not just accepting that certain things are true, but trusting in the person. And that person is Jesus. And the thing is that this morning... I actually pray for us all to have a sense of desperate reliance on Christ. Because if you don't, and if you're doing it in your own strength, are you poor in spirit? Because those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess our lack of dependence on you. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have thought more of ourselves in relationship to you than what we should that we do not depend on you, that we rely on our own resources. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you break us 
and not in a way that leaves us destitute, Father, but in a way that turns our face towards you, that allows us to be humble before your throne, and that allows us to seek the justice and righteousness that you call us to seek as as followers of your Son. Heavenly Father, I thank you that throughout this process that you have shown us unlimited grace and mercy. And that in the midst of that, that our faith does not have to be perfect. We do not have to be perfect people, Father, but we have to put our reliance in your Son. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for those people who say, you know what, I'm not sure I believe. I'm not sure I can do that because I don't know who He is and I don't know if you are trustworthy enough to put all my faith in you. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you reveal your character and your goodness and your trustworthiness to those people in this room, Father. I pray that you flood their lives with your grace and your mercy and your just release from the grind of life, Father, that they can step into the freedom that you so freely offer and that they can choose to follow you. Father, our lives are yours. Everything we have is yours. Help us this morning, Father, to open our hands and to freely drop our things and our agenda at the foot of your cross and walk out our lives in obedience and trust in who you are and what you have for our lives. A life of freedom, a life of grace, a life of mercy, that we are able then to outwork your justice and your righteousness with those amongst us that we are able to show the world who you are. That you accept them. That you love them.